Last week, we started a series called King Me. Um, the seed that germinated that series, this series, was an email thing I did with a professor uh, where he had given me access to his Dropbox. So I drug and dropped all the contents of it onto my computer. And when I did it, deleted the stuff on his Dropbox, okay? So I had a couple people say, I can't believe you stole that professor's files. Clarification, I did not steal the files. He gave me access to them. That was not the problem. The problem wasn't copying the files over. The problem he had was I deleted them all from his Dropbox. So I had, you know, that and being a smart aleck, those two things were the problem. But there was no problem with me grabbing them. So if you got that idea... I wasn't stealing anything, I was simply copying them, all right? Okay, good. So, um, what we saw was in the Old Testament, Genesis 1, we kind of looked at a bunch of stuff, there was something that had been lost on us, that our original design had in it this kind of king, queen, dominion, rule language, that we were to be this kingdom of priests, And um, we ended in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, which says, you guys need heart surgery because kind of this original design spiraled out of control in these cycles of failure, right? Genesis 3, failure. Genesis 4, murder. Genesis 6, wickedness everywhere. Genesis 9, drunkenness, nakedness. Genesis 11, Babylon. It's just, just these cycles that go on and on of failure, So so Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says, there has to be this radical reboot where heart surgery is done so you guys can recover what's been lost, all right? So that's kind of last week. Let me re-ask, and for those that were not here last week, let me re-ask, the whole reason why we're doing this series is this big question. Like, why do we do what we do right here? Why do we gather? What is Christianity about? And what I've found is there's two major answers people give. First is heaven. That we're here waiting to die and to go to heaven. I would argue this, that that idea comes from Plato and the Middle Ages and not from Jesus. Read Jesus. He does not talk about waiting to die to go to heaven, right? He talks about a kingdom a bunch, But the influence of Plato and the influence of the Middle Ages with Plato really starts to affect what we see Christianity about. So when we do that, here's what I said last week. This, the gathering of the saints, it's like church becomes almost a convalescent home where we sit around waiting to die, to go sit on a cloud, get chubby, play a harp, be barely clothed, and like endure a really long church service. Like there's a lot of people, so you're going to meet and greet for like 400 years. The sermon's going to be a couple millennia long. And, and then our only purpose now is to invite other people to join with us, which is not very compelling, right? So, so that's this kind of idea. And I'll take that one step further because I've seen this in my own life and in people I talk to. When that becomes the goal, I think we do this journey, and I've seen it replay to my life and people that I know, we go from joy, joyous Christians, to become what I call Jonah Christians, right? 
So it starts out, you're just full of joy. Like, man, I love this community. I feel the heart surgery that's happened. I have purpose. I have meaning. My sins have been forgiven. I want to invite in my unbelieving friends. But after a year or two, you kind of switch and you're no longer around unbelievers. You have a Christian mechanic, no problem with that. Christian dentist, Christian whatever. Everything kind of a Christian bubble. And part of that's good, but then part of that's unhealthy. Because what happens then is we start hearing this echo chamber and in our one view, our one culture is this kind of monolithic thing. And then in our monolithic Christian bubble, we start to look out at culture and the way things are going in our world and what's happening in every single sphere. And so we start looking out and we start seeing, yeah, that's Nineveh out there. That's bad out there. And look how horrible those people are out there. And then you start almost praying, God, judge them even destroy them. Right? Have you ever gone down that road? Yeah, I can feel it. I can feel it when I'm going into Home Depot and it's pottober <laughs> and I'm walking down the aisle and I pass three guys who have 27 fans to dry their stuff. And when I walk by, I get a contact high and I want to go eat some Doritos. <laughs> like I can feel that and I can be like, what's happening to my community and what's happening to my city? And what's happening to my county? And, and what am I going to hand over to my 16-year-old daughter? What kind of heritage am I giving? And so I can feel this like, Lord, judge them. Can we get like a plague of locust or something? I mean, the locust would love it. It's a double blessing, <laughs> right? I can become a Jonah where it starts being that because I think I get the big goal wrong. Let's die and go to heaven. So that's the first one I see. The second one I see that church does, the big one is this, it's behave. Like we're here and we gather together to learn how to behave better. And what that means, behave, it means this, stop having fun. <laughs> Whatever you're doing that's fun, stop it. That God is this kind of cosmic killjoy. He's searching the universe for anyone who is smiling or laughing to put a stop to it, which is just a horrible picture of God. I think God has a great sense of humor. Look at creation. Look at the platypus. Like, what in the world is that? Was he like bored that day? Hey, just check this out, Jesus. This is going to be so awesome. The kangaroo, right? The three-toed yak sloth. Like, how did that thing survive? It goes like a, it's like molasses. Like, why didn't they just get eaten? They must smell so bad, nothing will eat them or something. Like, God has this sense of humor. You see it in the Bible. Elijah with the 450 prophets of Baal that can't get Baal to do what they want him to do. What does Elijah say? I think he's using the restroom. <laughs> I can just see Elijah just cracking up like, that was such a good one, man, awesome. <laughs> Do you know this? Humans are the only species that definitively laugh. We're the only ones. Like, it, I'll prove it. Tickle your cat. <laughs> What's gonna happen to you, right? They don't laugh. They get really mad at you. Now, now there's some other, you can read about it, but there's, hey, maybe that's laughing. Maybe it's, we're the only ones that definitively like laugh. So, so I see those two as like, hmm, those are wrong ways to really view this thing that we're called to do. I think the right way is, and, and I'll put it this way, it's human flourishing. That the reason why we get together and we do what we do is so that we flourish as humans. And I get that because Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and it more abundant. 
The purpose of this thing is not behave or wait till you die to go to heaven. And there's hints of that, no doubt. So people have hints of that. The big, though, story is I've come that you might flourish. I want you to flourish. So how do humans flourish? I think there's two big things that help humans flourish. Number one is knowing our design. Like if you want to flourish, you got to know your design. I'll give this example, this illustration. Uh, when my two older girls were little, they had a goldfish tank. And one of my daughters, she would put her hand in that goldfish tank and she would try to pet her goldfish. Now I tried to stop her and try to tell her, hey, don't do that. She doesn't like it. And then it progressed where she would actually pull the goldfish out and then she would be petting it in her hand. And I'm like, listen, the goldfish does not like being petted. She's like, yes, it does. Look, he's smiling. I'm like, that's his angry face. He's actually mad at you, right? Okay, a goldfish is not flourishing when it's out of its tank being petted. So just imagine for a second, you're a goldfish. Pray that you don't belong to my daughters, number one. <laughs> and you're looking and you're thinking, you know, outside there, that couch looks super comfortable. I'd love to sleep on that couch or play in that sandbox. Or eat some sushi, maybe not that one. But I'd love to be out there doing that. Now, if a goldfish is on a couch, what's happening to it? Right? It's going to the giant toilet in the sky. That's what's happening. It's going to die. Why? Because it's out of its design. Where does a goldfish flourish? When it's swimming in the water. I think a lot of people get our design wrong and they're in the wrong place and they're wondering, why do I feel so disjointed? What I feel so out. I had the privilege of talking to young people. And very often they come to me kind of broken where it's, uh, they're upset over something, depressed, or even worse. And what I've been doing lately is I've been asking them this question. Are you flourishing? When you look at your day, when you look at your weekend, when you look at your life, would you say, I am flourishing? Nine out of 10 say, No. And what I tell them is, you're out of joint then. You're in the wrong spot. That there is a place for you, like a goldfish, that when you're swimming, when you're doing your design, you will flourish. So that's the first thing. You gotta know your design. The second thing though, I think it's just as important and just as linked. And, and it's really part of this series. It's this, you gotta develop. Not just your design, that's, that's, that's real important. But then there's this development side. And let me try to illustrate it like this. Have you ever decided you're going to build something? Maybe it was a tree fort with your son, or maybe it's a tree fort when you were a little guy. Uh, maybe it's a, a hot rod you're going to build and you're going to repair. Maybe it's a patio where you can kick back and enjoy something. Maybe it's a garden. Maybe it's, I don't know, just something you say, I want to build this thing. Maybe it's a soundproof room that you can lock yourself away from your kids. Did I say that out loud? Sorry. <laughs> we all have the kind, kind, kind of these goals and dreams that we want to go build and construct. And then you do it, you execute it, and there's great joy in the process. But when you're all done, have you ever been like, I'm going to sell the car now. I'm not going to use that anymore. Like the real joy wasn't the finished product. The real joy was the process of building and constructing and, and using and developing and learning. Like that was what the joy was. And then in the end, you don't really even use it. But you love the process. 
I think there is built into humans this need in us to develop, and it's life-giving. So I went, and I told you this, I went to this blue zone thing um, a couple of months ago, and there was some interesting things said by the author of the book, The Blue Zones. Uh, He said this, he said, there are two of the most dangerous years of your life, or you are most likely to die in one of these two years. So I asked a good friend who's a doctor here, he's a brilliant man. I said, do you know what those two years are? And he just thought for a second and he got them both right. You know what the two most dangerous years of your life are? The year you are born and the year you retire. Isn't that crazy? Why? Because the year you retire, what happens? No more developing no more purpose, no more mission. So that really intrinsic value that God has put into us all of a sudden goes to zero and we don't know what to do, okay? So those are the two things I wanna talk about today. As we follow Jesus, you've got this design aspect, but then you also have this development aspect and they're super important. So we're jumping in a little bit midstream because I just laid a foundation last week in the Old Testament kind of showing that Genesis 1 says, it uses these words, rule and dominion. They're king and queen words. God wants us to be image bearers of him up in the realm of the heavenlies, in the universe. He rules and reigns with generosity and kindness and compassion. And then we were to be the image bearer on earth, ruling with kindness and generosity and all this stuff. But then then that project, if you would, of God got sidetracked and ruined and was put into jeopardy by these cycles of just failure. So the Old Testament holds out though, hope. There's hope that this thing, this design can be rescued. So turn with me if you would to Daniel 7 before we launch into the New Testament. I know that was a very long introduction, but there you have it. So Daniel 7, really important chapter in the Bible. It talks about four really bad kings. Not the kings and queens we're supposed to be, really bad kings. And then it says, here's what's gonna happen. Prophetically, here's what's gonna happen. There is a rescue mission, all right? So Daniel 7, for the sake of time, I'll pick it up in verse 13. It's already gone through these really beastly kingdoms who are four kings. It's gone through them, and then something interrupts this pattern. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Who would this guy be? Absolutely. Jesus actually grabs his favorite term for himself, the son of man from this text. All right, this is the rescue mission. So then, just for the sake of time, verse 15. And as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious 
and the visions of my head alarmed me. I bet if you read the first part of this chapter, me too. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. Verse 17, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Really bad kings. But, verse 18, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. What did that just say? Well, verses 13 and 14, there's this rescue mission. The son is coming. He's going to rescue us from this broken cycle. And then he's going to give to us what? Verse 18, we're going to receive the kingdom and possess that same kingdom forever and ever and ever. That's what we get to do that we're going to join with Jesus in ruling and reigning. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. It's, we're going to reboot Genesis 1, if you would. We're going to restore it. Jesus, by the way, in his trial, quotes over and over from this passage right here, what I just quoted from. He quotes this right before he goes to the cross. This is what I came to do. I came to break the cycle of these bad kings, reboot the right kind of kings and queens, and give this kingdom over to them. It's brilliant, okay? So to show this, jump forward to me now with the New Testament. Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom language, Daniel chapter seven language. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, one quick note. There's this idea that the eye of the, of the needle was a gate in an ancient city, Jerusalem, for instance, that was really small, and so if a city was all shut up and you needed to get in with your camel, what you could do is you could unload your camel and then get him on his knees and he could shuffle through this gate. Have you ever heard of that? That's the eye of the needle. Anybody hear that? Okay. I was in Jerusalem for three weeks. I walked around that city, I don't know, 50 times. You can ask my wife. We walked every single night. We'd walk around it. There is no such gate, right? They don't exist. It's like we're trying to make an excuse for the words of Jesus. Like the only way a camel gets to the eye of a needle is if you use a blender. That's the truth. The whole point of this text is this. It's impossible, but not with God. So when we do stuff like that, all we're doing is we're, we're devaluing the very words of Jesus. Jesus is saying it can't happen without God. This kingdom thing, look at the Old Testament. It cannot happen without God. It's like trying to put a camel through the eye of a needle. It's not going to happen, okay? So Peter, verse 27, love Peter. He always asks the right questions in the wrong way. 
We all know someone like that. If you don't, it's you. <laughs> Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? <laughs> Peter, dude, you left five bucks. Come on. You're not a rich dude. It's just so classic. Jesus is so generous to Peter. He's not like, bro, Peter, I picked you as the Z team to prove that all things are possible with God, okay? You're in fact the proof of what I'm just talking about. Jesus is way too generous for that. Listen to what Jesus says. So Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, very important word, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And verse 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the first will be last. And the next vineyard parable is paramount to explain what Jesus is saying right there. But I don't have time for that. There's one word I want you to get. It's the word in the Greek for, in my translation, verse 29, in the new world. Some translation will say in the renewal of all things. It's the word in the Greek, palig genesia. Might ring a bell because the word genesia is literally where we get the word genesis. The word means this, genesis again. Jesus says, in the Genesis again, I'm going to rule and you guys are going to rule with me. I'm rebooting Genesis 1 again. It's been corrupted. It's fallen. My job right now is to restore that, do Genesis again so you can get back to the right rule and dominion of earth. Oh, Matt, you're pressing that text way too far. Oh, yeah? Okay. Let me show you some other texts and I'll just read them for you. I have a dozen or more that I'm going to share, right? I don't have time. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. He's being sarcastic. But then he adds, oh, that you would reign so that we might share the rule with you. What Paul just said there was this, you guys, are, you guys think you're kings without us. And oh, I wish you were, because that would mean there's been the fulfillment of all things. The pallid genesee has happened, all right? And then Paul actually expands on this in chapter six. He says, don't you guys know you're gonna judge angels? Don't you know what you're gonna be through eternity? Why are you squabbling and suing each other? Don't live like that. Live like kings and queens, 1 Corinthians 6. I'll give you another one. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything, suffering, for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory, this saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. 
Revelation 22, 4, the last book in the Bible. Listen to this. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. That whole name thing we talked about last week. And night will be no more and they will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Chapter five, verse nine, last one. They sing a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Does that sound like Daniel chapter seven? Totally. And verse 10, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. A kingdom of priests. Does that ring a bell? Should Exodus chapter 19, verse six. That was the call of Israel, but they failed. The reboot is it's going to happen this time. I have dozens more. All right, the point is this. Your design, number one, your design that got sidetracked in Genesis three to rule and reign on earth, to be the image bearer of God, that got sidetracked. It's now been rescued and redeemed here. So we spent two weeks on the cross back early in October, where we just look at all the things the cross does, reconciles, redeems, ransom, defeats the old enemy. And also part of it is reestablishing the human project, if you would, and getting it back on track to get it on course. So right now, listen to me. Your design, if you have believed in Jesus, you're a king or a queen. You can introduce yourself now as King Matthew. You can, but I would not do that because you probably got the message wrong. But that's your design. It started in Genesis 1 with Adam and Eve. It failed. It cycled out of control. Throughout it, there's this hope of rescue and redemption. And Jesus comes and says, I've redeemed it. I've inaugurated this new kingdom that now you get to participate in. And your future is one day you will rule and reign with me forever. That's that's your design, kings and queens. Part two, just as important, is the developing. If we want to flourish, you got to first know your design. But I think just as important, it's not sit around and, and do nothing. Rather, there is a component that says, all right, here is how you flourish and here's how you develop this thing. And I know that we probably come from a bunch of different strains of Christianity and because of that, when you come from a different strain of Christianity, you bring with you their ideas of how you move forward in the Christian faith, right? And so there's all these different ideas. I'll give you a couple. I've mentioned these before. Some people believe that the way that you mature or the way that you grow or the way you train, or I'll put it, the way you become the king or queen God wants you to be is, is I just call it the magic wand. That we kind of sit passively by and we just wait for God to just kind of wave this magic wand over us. And then all of a sudden we're boom, mature saints, kings, queens, okay? The phrase that's used is let go and let God. It's very passive. And there's some people that say, yeah, that, that's what I heard growing up, right? The other one is, um, it's the mere opposite of this. It's called the Nike Christian. It's just do it. You gotta get serious. 
And you gotta get spiritual disciplines. And you better be praying. And you better read 17 chapters of the Bible every single day. And you better be out there witnessing, right? So, so that's the other side. It's the Nike Christian mentality. And we get bumper stickers from it, right? Jesus is coming back. So act busy. Like that's the message. If you look busy, you must be doing what you are supposed to be doing. All right, a fourth one, or a third one is, the, the spiritualist, that, that you just get so close to God, he just kind of rubs off on you. You like snuggle in his lap and all of a sudden you become more like him. That's the spiritualist side. And there, then there's the fatalist. And they say this, we're so broken and so corrupt, there's no hope for us, just give up until Jesus returns. So those are kind of the, the big, I see the big kind of ways and there's mixture in them and there's a little bit of truth to all of them, but I don't think they actually capture how you and I are supposed to move forward. So turn with me, and here's the key text we're going to move through in the rest of this series. It's 2 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 8. And it captures both of these ideas and brilliantly shows us how to walk forward. So 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 1 verse 3. Listen to this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Design. Verses three and four is design. You and I, because of Jesus Christ, we now have everything we need for life and godliness. We get to partake in the divine nature. Does that ring a bell of what that might sound like. Yeah, image bearing. It's Genesis 1. We get a, the divine nature. We get an image bear once again. It's restored. It's rescued. We get an image. If there's any magic wand, it's right there. There's a magic wand. This gift of grace that makes us divine partakers of his nature. Gives us all these promises and all this stuff. All grace is beautiful. But then it doesn't end there. Look at verse five. For this very reason, what reason? Because of the gospel, because of what's been given to us, because we get to be image bearers, because we have these promises, because we're partaking now in the divine nature, because we've had heart surgery and we're different kind of people. For this reason, look what it says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Who's verse five? You and me. Who's making every effort? You and me. We're called to, because of this gospel, because of how good Jesus has been, because of who I am now, because of what has happened to me, we are now called to make every single effort because our hearts resonate with this new way of living life because we want to flourish. I said last week, it's like sanding a board. It's revealing what's already there. And this is a theme in the Bible. 
Hebrews 12, run the race with endurance, laying aside every sin and every weight. Run. First Timothy 5, train yourself in godliness. Who? You. First Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, there's one winner of a race, so be in it to win it. Run to win this race. There is all this. Make every effort. Do something. Go for it. And then it keeps going. And knowledge, verse 6, with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. And verse 8 is a key. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll redo verse eight in the positive. If these things are growing in you, you flourish as a human. Your design, verses three through four. This is who you are, partakers in the divine nature. And as you make every effort, you start to grow And these things increase in you and keep increasing in you and you flourish as a divine image bearer, as a king or a queen, okay? So God in the believer plants his nature in us and this nature begins to supplant our nature, the, the corrupted, fleshly, gross, selfish, bad nature that we have. It starts to supplant supplant that, move it aside. And what happens is we partake in the divine nature and we start being good image bearers, okay? That's the way it's supposed to happen. I'll give you two analogies of this real quick. The first analogy is this. I said last week that during college, I went to Alaska for two years and worked summers up there. I was a slimer the first year. And when you start as a slimer, they take you kind of on a tour of what happens. And so day one, we're there, we're touring. And the way they get the fish out of a tender into the cannery is unbelievable. They have this vacuum cleaner. It has a tube, it's over two feet in diameter. It's a massive tube. And they stick this tube down into the hole of this big tender and they just vacuum out all the fish. And these fish come out and it spits them out on this, it's about three feet wide, this conveyor belt that runs. And then in front of this conveyor belt are these massive stainless steel like swimming pools. And you have these guys sorting the fish and they stand there and the salmon all come out, just, just a wave of salmon. And these guys heads down are getting their certain species, a chum or a silver or a Chinook or a sockeye or a pink. And they're flipping them into the stainless steel tub in front of them. And there'll be four guys. And then the last one just go down into the final shoot. So you're watching this. And your first day, you're just like, oh my goodness, those guys are amazing. How do they know the difference that quickly between the species of fish? Because it's five, six fish a second. You just cannot believe how fast they go. You're like, oh, that's awesome, right? So day one, so I start sliming. Six weeks into this, I've looked at a lot of fish. 400,000 pounds a day we'd process there. So I've looked at a lot of fish. Six weeks into it, I get a tap on my shoulder. It's one of the sorter guys. He goes, hey, one of our guys is sick today. We need you to come up here and to help us sort fish. I looked at this guy, I said, dude, there's no way, man. I saw what you guys did. I saw it day one. There's no way I can do that. And this guy looked at me and this is what he said to me. He said, 
Oh no, you are ready. <laughs> okay. So, so I get up there and I'm standing there. There's two guys in front of me. There's me and there's a fourth guy. And I remember, I don't get nervous very often at this stage of life. I was so nervous. My heart is just pumping because I've seen that two foot funnel just spit out hundreds of fish. And I'm thinking, there's no way I can do this. There is no way I can do this. And so my, my fish that day was sockeye. So it just starts, just boom, they're coming out. The first guy just starting up, just fish, fish, fish. Second guy starts up, fish, fish, fish. And I'm just going, oh no, oh no. And then it came to me, something happened in that moment that's undescribable. It was like every other species of fish disappeared and all I saw on that table were sockeye. And I just started flipping fish, just one, boom, 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 boom. And I was just like, yeah, right? That was one of the best days of work I've ever had in my life. It was human flourishing. Hardest days of my life, but one of the best. What had happened? I'd been given eyes. I've had eyes for a long time. But all of a sudden, my eyes had developed into this new aspect. And I was using this new aspect in a way to partner with some other guys and do some works. It was brilliant. That's what's supposed to happen to us. This old way that we've looked, this old way that we've seen, this old way that we've done life, all of a sudden gets supplanted with a new life, a second nature, a stronger nature. Okay, here's my second example. Who's seen the movie Sully? I have not seen the movie, but I read about him. Is that the name of it? Sully, yeah, okay. I read about him a long time ago, right? Back in January 2009, he's flying a, uh, an A320, hits a flock of geese, takes out both motors. He's over the Bronx, one of the most densely populated places in America. If he goes down there, there's a lot of carnage, a lot of death. So he, amazingly, with no motors, takes that plane, banks it, and he lands it safely on the Hudson River. Which if you are a pilot, you know that's nearly impossible. Because if you hit water at just slightly, a fraction of the wrong angle, that plane pinwheels and falls apart and everybody dies. He didn't. Do you know why? Because solely part of what he did as a hobby was he was a glider instructor. So all of a sudden, this nature, this second nature that he has in him clicks in, no motors, nothing, and he glides that plane down brilliantly. And actually, I don't know if they showed this in the movie, there was a lady with, who was freezing, so he tears off his own shirt and like gives it to her. You're like, dude, you are so amazing. <laughs> oh man, that's, that's what's being said right here. You've been given this thing and it's to increase in you until it takes over. And then when you most need it, man, brilliant things happens. Wait a second, Matt, though. I thought this is all about grace. What does it mean, make every effort, verse five? What does that mean? Here's what it means. I'll give you an analogy. Let's say someone gives you an iPhone. I don't know, what is that? What are we on, iPhone 18s? Whatever it is. (laughs) Whatever iPhone we're on right now, someone gives you one of those, right? So you've got an iPhone 18, And it's a great gift, a wonderful gift. You're thankful for that gift. Awesome, thank you. But then all you do with that iPhone 18 is make phone calls. That's it. Like you don't really use that iPhone for everything it's supposed to be used for. There's no internet. You're not 
using Facebook. You're not going on Craigslist. No Instagram, no texting, no calculator, no reminders, no calendar, no Pokemon. Thank God, because you have a job. Praise God for that, right? No camera, no slow. You're not even using Siri. You'd be like, dude, what are you doing? You're missing out. Figure out how to use this thing. That's what's being said right here. Do you know what you've been given? Do you know what's been given to you? Man, use this thing. Grow in it. That's this series. And the, the fancy word for it is called eschatological authenticity. Eschatology just means end. Authenticity means real. Live your real end. You're going to be a king. You're going to be a queen that rules with Jesus forever. So you start acting like one today. Eschatological authenticity. Or live your destiny. Live what you're supposed to be. Not like the four bad kings in Daniel chapter 7. Our model for king, guess who it is? Jesus. And we start living like that with our family and with our friends and with neighbors. And it's beautiful and we flourish. That's the series. And so we're going to start just going down this list right here. What does that mean to have faith? What is virtue? How do we increase in that? How do we grow in these things? And so today as we come to the table... I have one thing to suggest to you. One thing and that's it. Be reminded of your design. Be reminded that Jesus Christ gave everything to remake you, to get a palygenesia, that we could have Genesis again, our rightful design, developing into that so we flourish. And so as you partake in the bread and in the cup, pray a simple prayer. God, help me to flourish this week. Help me to remind myself what has been given to me and to grow into it and to increase in it in such a way that I just say, yeah, to life because I'm flourishing. And so, Father, thanks. Thanks for your rescue mission. Thanks for Jesus. Thanks for forgiveness. Thanks for atonement. Thanks for adoption. Thanks that we get to one day rule and reign with you back to the way we're supposed to be. And so I pray that we would jump at the opportunity to develop in these ways this week, this month, this year. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.